Ann Moss Rogers, and I'm a mental health and suicide education expert, uh, professional speaker, and trainer on both of those subjects. What inspired you to get into the mental health field? I'd say it was when my younger son, Charles, started to struggle. Um, I had a history that my mother was head of the United Way. And I remember in the 70s, along when Rosalind Carter was talking about mental health, my mother was trying to establish a mental health clinic near a neighborhood. And there were vociferous um, objections and they would demonize her in the paper one day and crown her as the hero the next. And I remember her trying to figure out from a press release standpoint, how does she position herself to get them to accept something that our community really needed? <clears throat> Fast forward to around 2010, my son was struggling with some kind of mental health condition, but I couldn't really pinpoint what it was. And I kept asking for a diagnosis and they kept telling me he was high risk, but they wouldn't say, what he was living with or struggling with. And that was upsetting to me. I'm like, I can't figure out what to do for him if I have no information on how to support him. You know, they wanted to do a lot of testing and they didn't seem to want to do any much of anything else, you know. Um, so I joined Beacon Tree Foundation. Um, it doesn't exist today. It's kind of merged with another nonprofit. And they focused on youth mental health. And I was on that board for about 10 years. And um, <clears throat> I was executive director for a couple of years after. Um, so in 2015, my son did end up taking his life. And that's when I became executive director for a couple of years. I sold the digital marketing business because I just didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted, I felt like the universe was pushing me in that direction, but I didn't know what direction to take. So I just took some move and figured that it would clarify itself. And it did, and I decided to do speaking and educating. Ooh, let me tell you, that is not a an area in which you are embraced by either the people who might hire you or by the, some of the people who are already there. Um, and that was surprising to me. I thought I would be welcome. And... Uh, to this day, I still get a lot of pushback. Like, who is she? You know, who does she think she is? Well, I'm a mom who lost a child to suicide. I have some definite lived experience to share, just like you do. And I think it's taken a while for people to accept, and I lump myself in the, the same category of lived experience. It's different from your lived experience. But it's still lived experience and it still it still counts and it counts for a lot because 
those of us who've been through something, an adverse event, can look back later on. And now hindsight is 2020. We see some of the mistakes we made and we see some things that we would have liked to have changed. And we also see our successes. And by sharing those personal accounts, we teach people through our storytelling. And that's when the learning sticks, when you've got a personal story to tell. And now I have stories from all around the world of people who struggled and I can like show a comment they made, you know, not with their name on it, of course. Um, I'm real big about protecting privacy and telling the story behind that in order to teach. And that's been very rewarding. It's been very effective. But it is kind of like pushing a snow snowball uphill in a thunderstorm. You do a lot of work with educating uh, teens and and young people. Uh, and you know, high school is such a challenging time. How important is it to be you know a support system for these uh, young people? So I'd have to say that. More often than not, I'm speaking to the educators and the parents. Yeah. I really feel like we need to talk to the educators, the parents, and the students. Kind of a triangle, yeah. so to speak. We need to kind of come at it and give them their role from, from all sides. Because the kids are hearing it firsthand from their friends. They know who's struggling. They just don't know what to do with that information. Yeah. So when I speak to kids, I'm really very frank. I do some drug education. You know, a lot of them think Adderall is a smart drug, and I tell them exactly what it is. And I said, you don't even know what's in the Adderall pill. It could be fentanyl. It could be cement. It could be rat poison. You have no idea what's in it. Somebody sells it to you, and they say it's Adderall, and it might be, but it can be any number of things added to it. So do a lot of education just so they know, because guess who is educating them right now? The drug dealers are. And we need to take the time to present the other side. And then I talk a little bit about my story, but mostly I talk about coping strategies. And I talk about what are the foundation of good coping strategy? What defines a good one versus a bad one? And for example, is reading fart jokes, is that a bad you know, coping strategy or is that a healthy one? Well, long-term, will it help you or hurt you? Well, it certainly won't hurt you. You might not like, might not like it, but Reading fart jokes is a perfectly acceptable way to cope with a situation that's difficult. To give yourself a moment to laugh, <laughs> do something stupid, and, you know, a moment of distraction. But I think my most important message is to students, and there are usually two, is number one, feel your feelings. Um, there's this message in our society that going it alone there's some badge of honor around that. And I think that's wrong. So I think 
letting the feelings in and then letting them have their moment. You sit with them, but they don't last forever. And the really intense ones last about 60 to 90 seconds. And another message is the just listen one. Lots of times we don't know how to listen. And I always say you can stop suicide with your ears. And what I mean by that is it's really not what you do in your say or say. It's really more about allowing that person to feel heard. And saying you have so much to live for is not a way to allow somebody to feel heard. You're basically dismissing them. And, you know, let's say somebody tells you that they've just gotten a diagnosis for a mental health condition. And they start, well, at least any sentence that starts with at least <laughs> should not be on your list. It should be something like, well, tell me more about that. Tell me how that's made you feel. And allow that person the space to process. Um, if there's a moment of silence, don't go filling in with all the great things and solutions you think are going to work, but instead give them a moment to process their own thoughts and ask questions based on what they've told you. And that way they know you're listening, really listening, because it's not your job to fix it. It is your job to allow that person to feel heard. That's what deepens relationships. That's what opens up acceptance of just loving people for who they are and understanding that certain people are gonna have more challenges working through adversity, maybe because their background, maybe because they have trauma in their background, maybe it's because they have a mental illness. So it, you know, you've got to go through maybe some medication and then finding the right therapist. You just need to be the person that they can count on to be there for support and not tell them how to do it unless you're actually coming to a person with the same exact condition and asking, how did you handle this? And even then, you don't want to be told what to do. You're just asking what worked for you and you'll be able to take away what you need in that conversation. How does your work help your own healing process? I would have never thought it would have done that. Um, I think... When I teach classes on grief and loss, and I've got a, we got a series that we do, coping strategies for grief and loss, we talk about giving back and how giving back helps you feel like you're doing something to prevent that type of situation for other people. And it just helps in the healing. I mean, it's hard as, you know, I get death threats. Sometimes I get other kinds of mean threats. You know, I'm going to put your name and social security number out there. Um, I get people who say things like I'm a shameless self-promoter. 
like this is this is not a space I ever pictured myself or wanted to be in. I never wanted to lose a child to suicide. I never wanted to make him the poster child for suicide and suicide prevention. So I grappled with that at first. I'll be honest with you. It's, it's kind of like, this is what I was meant to do. And my first reaction is I was pissed off. You know, why would I, this be my chosen path of what I'm supposed to do with such a high price tag? It just didn't seem fair. And I knew I needed to give myself some time to accept it with grace. And once I did, I never looked back. And there have been times I want to quit, I want to stop. And then somebody sends me a message. You talked to me when uh, you were in Miami or California or Canada or training at a school. And I tried this. And I feel so empowered to have helped somebody save their own life. Or this blog post that you wrote saved my life last night. And I tend to get those messages when I when I need them the most. And I just feel like that can't be a coincidence. It's it's hard work. I don't think that immersing oneself every day in the subject would be the best thing for everyone. And I have friends who have gone into it, you know, like me, feet first, dive, dove right in. And then they realized this is too much and it's too triggering for me. And they pulled back and now they just do some small things around it. And that's okay. You do what works for you, you do you. And I'm, I do it this way because I am by nature obsessive. I'm passionate and obsessive. And when I get a hold of something, I'm like a pit bull that doesn't like gas. And so it's just in keeping with my personality. And my son loved to be on stage. He was very effective there. And I think that's where I feel him with me. And that's why I decided to be in front of people teaching, training, and presenting because I feel his presence with me when I do. So I think that's been a big part of the healing is that I have cultivated this relationship with my beloved dead and over time it has evolved. Did you, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are shaking their heads and, oh, I get it. Yeah, I have a relationship with somebody who's died, but I won't ever tell anyone. <laughs> Yeah. But that relationship does evolve over time. And if you had told me that before he died, I would have told you you were crazy. Absolutely crazy. Um, and when I say crazy, I do not mean mentally ill. I just mean acting outside, mm -hmm. doing something nutty. And I don't consider the, those two to be the same or the same definition. But thanks for asking that. That's a good question. And uh, you sent me some information while we we're setting up the interview about 
mental illness and and drugs and substance abuse uh can you tell me a little bit about what you work on with that stuff so i think you know you've got this big emphasis on the opioid and fentanyl crisis and then you have you know a rise in suicides and so I'm often, you know, it's kind of like pick a side. But my story is really the two of those subjects blended. Now, more people um, die from alcohol than they do any other substance. So the legal one is still the front runner. But I believe that our young people and people in general use drugs and alcohol to sort of normalize the situation to numb uncomfortable feelings and to push things away and to find a moment of feeling good when you're in a sea of despair. So Charles used drugs and alcohol to numb thoughts of suicide. And to a teenager, I can understand, well, this works. You know, why should I go visit people who, who humiliate me, which is pretty common in the mental health field to go and get help and be called all sorts of names and treated poorly when I can take care of it myself. So use drugs and alcohol to numb thoughts of suicide, which I never knew he had. And that was his solution, but it wasn't just his solution. It is often how people cope with difficult circumstances and those who use substances um, or misuse them really are 15 times more likely to die by suicide so we hear about a lot of accidental overdoses and researchers believe that as many as 25 percent of those overdoses are not accidental they're usually not going to rule one as a suicide unless there is a suicide note because you can't tell intention after the fact, right? Or maybe like if they were driving in a car, whether there's skid marks or not. Um, but they're usually going to rule it as an accident. But I wish somebody had told me that statistic or even educated me on suicide at all before my son took his life. I had no idea he was at such a high risk for that, you know, that death. I mean, all I could think was overdose because that's what everybody was talking about. And we need to recognize what those subtle signs are. And now that I know them, I mean, it is instantaneous how quickly I pick up on it now. You know, in social media, how somebody, I love all of you. You've all been so great. And it sounds like a goodbye letter to me. Yeah. But everybody else will chime in. Oh, I love being with you too. You're such a great friend. And they're not recognizing that this person is, this is a cry for help. And you know, how am I going to respond so that the people who love this person understand that this could potentially be a cry for help? What's that, what's that next step to take? And 
in my case, if I know the person, I'll reach out. If I don't, I'll reach out to somebody I think I know and go, this post really concerns me. Do you, can you think for a second and step back and see it more as a goodbye letter? So it's really recognizing all of, of the signs that I miss that I want to educate people on because I don't want them to miss it. They're invitations to ask. So you do a lot of work in the mental health field. You have, you know, books behind you. Uh, so what do you do for your own mental health? All right. So it was uh, right after the pandemic. And I started speaking regularly again. And what I would notice is I would tell my personal story. It would be great while I was there. And then I would come back and hours later, I would feel this emotional crash. And I just feel this emptiness. And I'm like, you know, how long can I deal with this? And should I be? You know, is this putting me in not a really good place? What What is my self-care around that? Now I have a really big toolbox <clears throat> and I have a lot of different strategies, but this was, I really needed to give this a lot of thought. Should I do something else, you know, in this space instead? So one of the things I did is I started doing more training that wasn't as focused solely on my story. So I train a lot of teachers and educators and parents and even workplaces and the second thing was that I hand out index cards before um, the speaking engagement and when it's thousands I have to have a lot of help typically my audiences are under 2,000 for the most part you know not counting anything that may be streaming and at the end Right before I tell my last story, I asked people to write down one thing that they learned on that index card and put it in the middle of the table and allow me to take that with me. And I told them it's because I have that emotional crash. And when I start to feel like it's coming, I pull out those index cards and I start reading them. And that has filled me back up. It's it's actually done two things. It's helped me hone my presentation around those themes which resonate with my audience members and get rid of the stuff that was not resonating. But it also helps me. It helps me by filling me up and being able to go forward because right away when I start reading them, they pick me up and I save every one of those index cards and I have them in these baskets behind me and they're starting to get kind of full because I have thousands at this point. And even now on days when I'm struggling, I have a lot of them in a photo gallery on Facebook and I go check them out. And they just helped ground me in the face of, you know, pushback and difficult days. And like I said, it 
it's just one. I do a lot of writing. I get outside in nature. I go to um, a meditation with Tibetan singing bowls. They call them a sound bath. Um, but I'm always adding things in that healthy toolbox. I'm always listening to other people's ideas. Like a friend of mine, she goes, oh, when I'm not in a good mood, I just dance. Well, all I have to do is tell Amazon Alexa to play one of my favorite dance songs and I am off. <laughs> I'm having my own risky business um, <laughs> play in my home. And understanding that emotions are already always temporary. And I do a lot of self-talk and none of it is mean or self-deprecating. And I learned to do that when I was 15. So over time, I've gotten really good at that and it's become second nature. So, you know, I'll be feeling kind of low. Everything's, you know, hit at once. Uh, you know, I got a bunch of rejections for whatever, all in one day. And Moss, you won't feel like this forever. Tomorrow you'll wake up, it'll be a new day and you will feel energized, you'll want to move forward. But right now, just take that time to do something else. So that positive self-talk is I think really important too, because we we're really hard on ourselves. Yeah. And why should we be when uh, there are people out there that are not going to like me, but I don't need to be part of that chorus. I need to support me. And I know there are other people who do. And I need to be there for them too. And that, that really helps me get through some of those difficult times and understanding that, that I'm human. And I'm going to make mistakes, but that's where we learn the most, right? Our most successful people are really a combination of all and a bunch of failures, you know, put together that they finally know what success looks at, looks like because they had all these failures in the past and they learn from them. So I try to see those failures is learning opportunities or, you know, they may push you in a different direction that turns out to be amazing. Yeah. If I didn't fail at the things that I'm doing, I would have stopped a long time ago. Right. Exactly. You know what I'm talking about then, Michael. So what would you say to anyone who is going through a tough time? I think the first thing is find support and people you can talk to who won't try to fix it, but yeah. will try to listen. Right after Charles died, I started looking for people who had been through this. I had lunch with them. I went to groups. Don't tough it out alone. Men especially think that's what they need to do because our culture has told yeah. them that. Screw that. You weren't, I mean, I've even noticed with veterans, um, in order to support each other, they'll create little buddy systems of two, three, four guys that they touch in with once a week. You know, they have a specific time. 
how's everybody doing? Everybody having a, you know, if you're, if you're not, you gotta be honest. And they've helped each other through really difficult times through this buddy system. So I think there, there are many ways to, to find ways to find that support. But I think finding support is absolutely crucial. There is no badge of honor for going it alone because what you're going to do is start avoiding. You're going to get up in your own head. And in order to get up, to get it out of your head, you've got to be with people and connect. We're humans. We need to connect. That is one of the four basic uh, foundations of good mental health is, is connection. So where do you want to see your mission, say, in the next three to five years? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to continue building uh, training and speaking and having maybe more mainstream conferences reach out, um, you know, let's say a leadership conference or something like that. It may never happen. But I'd like to think that it's more mainstream topic than than people are willing to accept. I'd also like to see me in doing more consulting in educational spaces where I have a lot of um, know-how and a lot of ideas. You know, I'm in, I, my background is advertising and marketing. People hired me because of my ideas. And ideas that don't necessarily cost an arm and a leg, but utilizes resources you already have and that you don't even know you have. And um, I'm really, I'm really good at that. Don't ask me to do your accounting or set up your <laughs> event because <laughs> I suck there. But um you know that that place of seeing opportunity where no no one had seen it is is a specialty of mine. How can people reach out and learn more? Uh, you go to mental health awareness education, or you look up the name Ann Moss Rogers. I have a website called mentalhealthawarenesseducation.com. If you click on the one that says books. You'll see my books, but you'll also see a library of free eBooks and just all sorts of things like, you know, do you suspect that you may be struggling with depression? And I talk about some of the ones that we often don't think of as signs for depression. Um, so various eBooks to, to help people cope with life and understand where they are in life. 